0: Eleven and verse seven. This is a continuation, if you will, on the first six verses that we, or the first seven, uh, well, verse six verses that we looked at last Sunday. And if you remember that, you'll be able to connect the dots. And if you weren't here, I'm sure you'll you'll be able to figure it out pretty easily where we're going. Jesus has just finished his conversation with John's disciples, and now they're heading back to deliver to John Jesus' answer to his question. John had expressed the confusion or doubt about who Jesus is. And a crowd had been listening to this interaction. We don't really see the crowd until we read uh, verse 7 here and we find out that there were other people listening. But they had known about John. They knew that John was a preacher they knew he was a prophet, and they probably heard John preach that Jesus is the Messiah. But now they know for sure that John, sitting in prison, is wondering if Jesus really is the Messiah or not. And as John's disciples leave, Jesus then turns to this audience that has kind of been eavesdropping, if you will, into John's question and he begins to speak to the crowd to to uh, about John. And the thing here is to notice that if John had any doubt about who Jesus is, what Jesus says next to the crowd reveals to us that Jesus had no doubt who John is. He knew that he, Jesus, was the Messiah. And he knew that John was his messenger. And so what Jesus says to us next here, or to the crowd here, as we eavesdrop on their conversation, is not to defend himself to the crowd. John was kind of casting a little bit of doubt on whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus isn't going to defend himself here. He is going to show them the truth about who John is and who he is. Jesus is defending John to the people. Shows them the truth of who they both really are. So we kind of can divide this into two sections here. Verses 7 through 10. We'll talk about the greatness of John. And in just a moment, we'll read through that. Let me let me give you a little bit of a background to it. In verses 7 through 10, we hear Jesus' high remarks of the person and the character of John the Baptist. Now, they had heard John's question and likely recognized this, this confusion, this doubt uh, in his words whether or not Jesus is the one who is to come. And Jesus' words about John here tell us that he knew who John is, that he is the one who is to come before the Messiah. He is the one who was prophesied to come. I know who John is, Jesus says. And to the crowd, he is saying, make sure that you do as well. It's kind of interesting in how these implied questions begin to uh, reveal themselves at the very beginning of the passage. John's question was, are you the one who is to come? And last week, the implied response from Jesus was, are you the one who will stumble? Or are you the one who does not stumble or is not offended by me? But in answer to John's question, but to the new audience, John said, are you the one who is to come? And Jesus is going to explain to this to the crowd here, John is the one who is to come before the one who is to come. And so Jesus asks three rhetorical questions here that lead the audience to recognize not only who John the Baptist is, but then consequently who Jesus is. The Messiah, the Christ. Jesus wanted the people to see in John the messenger spoken of by the prophets who would come before the Messiah and prepare his way. And if they could see that, then their eyes would be open to seeing that the Messiah had come. And indeed, he was among them at that very moment, speaking to them. And so from these three questions, we see Jesus is leading them to connect what they already knew about John with what they had known about the Scriptures. Look in verse number 7, if you will. He says, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Now Jesus is asking the people here what they expected to find when they went out into the wilderness to see John. What were you expecting when you got there? What did you go out to see? And first He asks, were you expecting to find a reed shaken by the wind? This reed He is talking about is something that is weak and, and fickle that, that just blows, uh, bends, whichever way the wind blows it. It doesn't stand firm. It has no backbone, if you will. And Jesus was asking the people, did you expect John to be a man like that? Who vacillated with the public opinion? Who bowed to the whims of his audience? Were you thinking that he was the people's puppet? Willing to do or say whatever was necessary to please the masses, bowing to the whims of the people? And the answer is, of course not. And Jesus anticipates this implied no, and he goes on with another question, takes it a step further. Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? You know, what does Jesus mean by this? I mean, wearing soft clothing. He was wearing cashmere or what, or was he wearing some thick burlap sack? What, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, the next, the next statement that Jesus makes helps us to understand what he was talking about here. He says, those who wear soft clothes are in the king's houses or the king's palaces. This would be a man who flatters the king and caters to his desires, thereby enjoying his favor and the privileges of palace living. Essentially, Jesus is asking if they thought that John was the king's yes man. He was the king's pawn. And again, the answer is rather obvious. No. If John really was the king's pawn, he wouldn't be sitting in prison right now. John would be dressed in the finest clothes enjoying the luxuries of a palace. But John's clothes were far from what you might consider or even what they would have considered fashionable or soft. John was known for wearing camel's hair and a leather belt, which suggests that John really wasn't too concerned with elaborate clothing. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was a bit of, a, of an attraction. He was a bit of an oddity, not only with what he said, but in how he looked as well. The thing that Jesus was pointing out to them that they already knew is that John wasn't a people pleaser. John wasn't interested in his public image. He wasn't concerned with whatever political allies he gathered to himself. He did not serve the people. He did not serve the king. John was a servant of God. And that's where Jesus leads them with his third question here. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. John didn't bow to the pressures of men or society, and he didn't pursue earthly comforts either. John served God. John was God's prophet who spoke God's message to God's people, regardless of how they received it or whatever the consequences might be for saying it. John, in Matthew 3, boldly called the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers when they came to be baptized. He said, who warned you of the wrath to come? Brood of vipers. He told Herod of his immoral behavior with his brother's wife, an act which landed him in prison. But that's what prophets do. They speak the truth. And they say what needs to be said, even if the hearer doesn't like the message. And we read that Jesus goes on with this and He says that John wasn't just another prophet. He was, in fact, more than a prophet. That's what we read at the end of verse number 9 there. I tell you, more than a prophet. See, John wasn't just someone who prophesied. That's what a prophet does. John was also the object of prophecy. Jesus revealed that John was the one who, who was spoken of by the prophet Malachi over 400 years before this time. Now, a little history lesson would be very helpful here, so if you can... Uh, quickly turn to the book of Malachi. If you don't know where that is, uh, you're not alone. Uh, it took me uh, three days to find it myself. But if you back up to the end of the uh, the beginning of the book of Matthew, and then keep backing up a little bit, and you'll run to the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi. It's a very short book, and all the pages there stick together uh, because most Christians haven't really ever read those those books. Uh, because they're very confusing. But Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament, and if you find that one and uh, and hold your spot in chapter 3. Malachi is a very short, prophetical book that belongs to a larger group of writings known as the Twelve. Very uh, creative title there, but they're known as the Twelve. And you've guessed it, there are twelve writings within this book. We call them the Minor Prophets. Now, in the Hebrew Bible... Malachi and the twelve make up the second of three parts. They're the middle of the Bible. In in ours, it's the end of the Old Testament. But in a Hebrew Bible, the book of Malachi and the minor prophets are smack dab in the middle. And the the Hebrew Bible ends with the book of Chronicles. Well, Malachi prophesied to a people who had grown cold towards God. Uh, the, Israel was living in exile, they were uh, intermarrying with pagan peoples, they were uh, neglecting the true worship of God, and they had uh, even adopted a cynical attitude towards God. You can read it uh, in, in one sitting, you can read the entire book of Malachi. But Malachi had come to remind the people that though they had forsaken God, and though they had become faithless, God had not forgotten his covenant. God had not forgotten his promise, and he would prove himself faithful once again by sending them a deliverer. So if you look in Malachi 3.1, it tells us that prior to coming, uh, to the coming of the promised deliverer, there would be a messenger. It says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And this is the verse that Jesus was referring to in Matthew 11. If you'll go back there, uh, and, and you'll see, Jesus says in verse number 10, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And Jesus was telling the people that the messenger promised by God through Malachi had now arrived in John the Baptist. And this implies that if the forerunner, the messenger, who was coming to prepare the way for the Lord, if he had already arrived, then the Lord himself was near. In fact, Messiah was very near. He was standing in front of them. They just couldn't see it. And John's arrival as the messenger of the Messiah is a very important moment in salvation history. It's the turning point of salvation, if you will. It signaled the arrival of the one who would bring salvation from God. And it indicated the end of the old covenant and it signaled the beginning of a new one. Grant Osborne wrote that John the Baptist is the culmination of the old covenant and the launching pad for the new covenant. So John's ministry was a really, really big deal. And people needed to realize and recognize what John's presence and his ministry meant. That Messiah and the promised kingdom of God was very, very close. And that was his message. We read about his message in Matthew 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. You need to repent. That's the action. John, See, John was an important piece of the salvation puzzle. His coming signaled Christ's coming. But then, if we're following in Matthew, in verse number 11, Jesus gives John literally the greatest compliment that a person could receive. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No human being had ever lived that was greater than John the Baptist. That is some pretty high praise. And coming from Jesus, from God himself, no man greater than John the Baptist. Now, why would Jesus call John the greatest born among women? It could be that John was not just a prophet. He was more than a prophet. It could be that he was the prophesied messenger of Christ. It could be that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, which was something that had, had, had not been a thing before then. Carson suggests that it was because he was the only prophet to unambiguously point to Jesus as the Christ. Whatever the reason that Jesus calls him that, he he does call him the greatest who ever lived. So think about that for a moment. All the people that have lived up to this point, not one of them, the priests, the prophets, the kings, the patriarchs, Moses, David, Elijah, Samuel, Adam, Abraham, Isaac, all those guys, none of them greater than John the Baptist. And many of these people played a very significant role in salvation's history, but none matched the greatness of John the Baptist. But then in our next section, the very next words out of Jesus' mouth, as we get into chapter the second section with uh, with verse 11, the very next words out of Jesus' mouth are possibly even more astonishing than what he just said. He said, again, verse 11, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He just gave John the highest praise. No one greater. And then he flips it and says, but the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is even greater than he is. Greater than the one who is greatest. Greater than the greatest. Now, Jesus has just spent several verses detailing and emphasize how great and significant John is as a man, and as a prophet, and as his messenger. But now he says that even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. So think about that. Even the lowliest person in God's kingdom is greater than John. John the Baptist. Greater than Messiah's forerunner. How can this be? Well, some might say that this means that John wasn't a believer. and I don't think that that's the case. That John, I believe John was a part of the kingdom. and He's not saying that the least is in the kingdom and John wasn't a part of the kingdom. I believe that Jesus is talking about all of those who are in the kingdom after Christ's death and resurrection. Let's call them the New Testament believers. That includes those of us who are saved. Because of their place in history or because of our place in history they can look back at the events surrounding Christ's ministry, his death, his his burial, his resurrection, and see Jesus as the Christ with greater clarity and understanding than John ever had. In all of the Old Testament, prophets and saints looked forward to the coming Messiah. But they didn't know who he would be, and they didn't know when he would come. And they really didn't understand what he was going to do. We see that frustration in John. We read about it from the disciples all the way up to his death and even the three days that he was dead. They didn't understand. But New Testament Christians can see and hear what Old Testament prophets and believers longed to see and hear but can never understand. David Platt wrote that even the least person who comes into the kingdom after Jesus has a greater understanding of the Messiah than everyone who came before Him. And this is an incredible privilege that we enjoy as believers at this point in salvation history. We can look back with greater clarity and understanding. We have a completed canon of Scripture that points us to Jesus we have an indwelling holy Spirit that guides us in the truth, and none of these things did the Old Testament believers have. Moses was a great man, but he didn't know that Messiah's name was Jesus. Even John was a great man, but he could not see with the same clarity that you and I can see when we read the scriptures. And though we live thousands of years after uh, Christ walked this earth, we know through the scriptures and through the faithful testimony of witnesses passed down through the ages. That Christ came and lived and died and rose again. That He is the sacrifice for sin. That through His substitutionary death and resurrection, those who believe in Him and turn to Him can be saved. And best of all, we know that His name is Jesus. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas. It's not just the birthday of a great teacher or of another prophet. It's the birthday of the Messiah. We celebrate the coming of the Christ. Now the apostle Peter wrote to the first century Christians in one of his letters, and I want to read a passage to you if you 're quick, you can get there and read it with me otherwise if it 's in your bulletin, you can look at it later. But first, Peter, at the very beginning of his of his letter there, uh, he writes uh, to many early Christians who were like us. Uh, he was writing to a group of people, some of whom may have been living during the time of Christ and maybe had even heard or seen Christ physically, but there many of them were like us, they were removed from earth 's uh, Christ's earthly ministry, they no longer see him or heard him. They they heard about him, but they did not know him personally as Peter would have. And he writes this, First Peter 1 and verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Now we as New Testament believers, thousands of years after Christ's earthly ministry, have a clearer picture than any of the saints of the Old Testament. Even angels long to look into what we see and know from our place in history. Jesus continues there in Verse number 12, if you go back in Matthew 11, he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now Jesus was saying here that since John's ministry began, and up to the present time that he is speaking to them, there had been what we see translated here as violence. Now to be honest here, this is a very tricky tricky verse. Uh, Verse number 12 is not an easy one to understand, and I'm not quite certain what Jesus means here. Uh, After all of the studying and all of the reading, the one thing I am very certain of is I have no idea what he's talking about. And, but there are probably there are four possible explanations here, and I'll just share them with you just for your, for your benefit. And uh, if you don't understand it either, then join my club. I'm starting it. We have shirts and everything. It's really cool. I don't understand verse 12. But uh, there, some will see this uh, it's regarding this phrase here that the kingdom uh, suffered violence and the violent take it by force. There's two different verbs going on here, and and the key operative word here is the word violence here, violent. And some see this as a negative theme, uh, theme meaning that uh, the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence, it's being persecuted, and then violent men are persecuting it, they're seizing it. Uh, others see this as a positive thing, and so they translate it a little differently, and they would say that some, um, that the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing, and the uh, forceful people, the disciples, Christians, seize it by force. They lay hold of it. And then some see it as a negative and a positive thing. They see it as a good and a bad thing. The kingdom is forcefully advancing, but then violent men oppose it, or the kingdom suffers violence and forceful people lay hold of it. And, then, and so there's like, okay, it could be that. It could be that. And I, you read this this guy's explanation, and you say, oh, well, that makes sense. And the, Read this guy's explanation and go, yeah, well, that makes sense too. And they contradict each other. And uh, many, many times, if I, if I uh, have a, a question about something, the people that I respect, the scholars and, and the writers and preachers that I respect, if they say it, then I'll, I'll kind of tentatively uh, believe that. But when they all disagree with each other, I really don't know what to do. And this is kind of that case. Uh, but one thing is for certain is that this period is marked by difficulty and opposition, violence. And John, in this time, is given the prophetic title of Elijah, which also goes back to something that Malachi had said in his prophecy. I won't ask you to turn back there again because you may never find Malachi again, but if you, if you, if you find chapter 4 and verse 5, which is the second to last verse of the Old Testament, it says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. It's interesting to remember, and incidentally, the English Bible, our 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 uh, collection of the of the canon finishes the Old Testament with this promise of Elijah and starts right away with the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the first characters introduced to us is John the Baptist. And in uh, when the angel spoke to John's parents, when he spoke to Zechariah, about his birth, he said this of John. He will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn away and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It's interesting. Coincidental? I don't think so. Because later in Matthew 17, Jesus was speaking with his disciples and they asked him this question, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus answered them this, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, there may be some dual meaning to these verses, but the point that Jesus is revealing is that John is the promised one who is to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And with his coming, he would prepare the way for the coming Christ. That's why Jesus says to them in Matthew 11, if you're willing to receive it, if you will accept it, he is Elijah to come. Just as the truth about Jesus' identity was not obvious to everybody, not everybody could, could or would accept that who John was. That he was the messenger coming before the Christ. And this is where the distinction is made. Believers are those who are willing to accept the truth. Just like Jesus warned back in verse number 6 when he said, Blessed are those who are not offended by me or stumble over me. Jesus is saying to the crowd here, Are you willing to see who John is? Are you willing To receive it. Because if you receive the truth about John, you realize that Messiah is coming after him. And that he points to Christ. He points to me. And Jesus said that those with ears to hear must hear. Once again, the truth is out there. It's presented to all, but only those who have ears to hear it will understand it. Only those with eyes to see will see it and receive it. Now for us, we live in a time of fulfillment. What the prophets long ago foretold and waited for, we have a record of being accomplished. They looked forward to the Messiah who would one day come. We look back to Christ who has come who was crucified, who is risen and living again. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So let us as believers in this time Rejoice in our position in salvation history and take hold of our task, which is to preach Christ, the power and wisdom of God. So in just a few moments that we have left, I want to ask you one question. How do you measure greatness? Title of this sermon here being greater than John. How do you measure greatness? Jesus said that John was the greatest born of women. Yet, even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. So, let me ask you this. Let me ask the question this way Are you greater than John? Are you greater than John the Baptist? Are you a part of God's kingdom? It's kind of the prerequisite. To be even the least in the kingdom means you're still in the kingdom. Have you recognized the truth about who Jesus really is? I want to read from you a passage here from. Uh, D.A. Carson, I like, to, I like to read him and, and uh, share what he says. And he wrote this, So often Christians want to establish their greatness with reference to their work, their giving, intelligence, preaching, gifts, courage, discernment. But Jesus unhesitatingly affirmed that even the least believer is greater than Moses or John the Baptist simply because of his or her ability, living on this side of the coming of Jesus the Messiah, to point him out with greater clarity and understanding than all his forerunners ever could. He said, if we really believe this truth, it will dissipate, all cheap vying for position and force us to recognize that our true significance lies in our witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question again, how do you measure greatness? Is your greatness measured by your work, by your talents, By your bank account? Do you consider material possessions or social connections to be the measure of greatness? Jesus said that our greatness lies in our spirit-empowered ability to see the truth about who He is. While we sang that song, I know of a name, a beautiful name that angels brought down to heaven. They whispered it low one night long ago and to a maiden of lowly birth. We sing the chorus, that beautiful name is Jesus. Moses didn't know. He knew a Messiah would come, but he didn't know it's Jesus. The Jews today believe and wait for a Messiah. They don't know it's Jesus. So if you have ears to hear, rejoice in that. Rejoice as Peter said with... Joy unspeakable, inexpressible joy, and full of glory. Overflowing joy that cannot be expressed belongs to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Enjoy the blessings of the kingdom, of living in the time of history that you live in today. John was privileged to announce the new kingdom, but it was unable to experience many of its blessings. Yet we, as New Testament believers, have intimate and immediate access to God. We enjoy fullness of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. We have a complete revelation and copy of God's Word. We have a once-for-all forgiveness of sins. So, may we read God's Word with clarity, a greater understanding, May we serve the Lord with a greater confidence, knowing who He is. And may we find our significance and our greatness simply in knowing and bearing witness to who Jesus